Let's give our attention now to God's Word as we hear Him speak to His people. Let's pray. Father, You are so good to us. Uh, We thank You that You have revealed Yourself uh, fully, sufficiently, incredibly in Your written Word. We thank You that in Your kind providence to to all of the world, all of creation, and, and most especially to Your people, You've preserved this Word in writing Thank you, even as we considered in Sunday school this morning the, the inerrant and infallible word and how you have made yourself fully known and given us a complete testimony of your triune existence, your, your attributes, your works, and the dominion of Christ over all things. We pray now as we open the ninth chapter of the book of Judges that you will help us not only to see the record of of a wicked king, but that you will help us to see our own sinful nature, our own ambitions, our own pride, and you will help us to see a perfect, holy, just, and righteous king, even Christ himself. Help us to look to him for for all that we have, for all that we are, and for our full hope of eternity. Holy Spirit, will you give us illumination now? We confess that we are not able uh, to understand your word rightly apart from your powerful work in us. We ask that you would work to give us understanding, to give us conviction of sin, to give us the comfort of the gospel. Help us to see Jesus in all that we read, all that we hear. Amen. Take your seat with me, and, and turn, or take your seat and turn with me to, to chapter 9 of the book of Judges. We consider... Our, our chapter by chapter walk through this. The title of today's sermon is A Thorny King. A Thorny King. And, and I think you'll see as, I, as we open the text here in a moment, there's a fable that one of the characters, a man by the name of Jotham, that he tells to the people of Shechem, and he mentions a king that's of the bramble, a briar bush. So a thorny king. In Judges 9 records a a tragic episode in the life of God's people. The pattern we've seen repeatedly has been so far that that God's people rebel against him, and then God sells them into or gives them over to uh, an outside oppressor. And then the people of God cry out to the Lord, and he raises up a judge, a deliverer, to rescue them from this outside adversary. But Judges 9 breaks this pattern. Because in Judges 9, we don't have a Midianite, we don't have a Canaanite, we have an Israelite who's persecuting his own people. George Schwab insightfully notices this. He says, more material in the book of Judges is devoted to civil war than to war against external enemies. Judges is more interested in Israel behaving badly than in the oppression that God raised up. That might surprise you. And, and because we, we've only made it to chapter 9 so far, and, and most of what we've seen thus far has been outside adversaries. And Judges 9 sort of starkly reminds us that there can be every bit as much evil that comes from within as from without. And Judges 9, in this account of Abimelech, we find, I think, a case study in self-centered, power-hungry leadership and all the perils that come with that. 
Abimelech, believe it or not, if I were to ask you, who was the first king of Israel? Or who was the first king, maybe more accurately, in Israel? And likely you'd say, well, Saul. Because Saul, of course, was the first one appointed, anointed by God. But in a technical sense, Abimelech is the first king in Israel. Now, we're going to find self-appointed. He's illegitimate, not approved by God in any way, shape, or form. But he was, in fact, the first king. History, we find in, in chapter 9 of Judges. And this is really, the, I think, the key, the key point here in this whole chapter is that history will be marked by illegitimate and power-hungry leaders. But nevertheless... Every one of those illegitimate, power-hungry leaders stands under the certain judgment of God, which will surely, infallibly, decisively come upon them, and especially, it's going to come upon those who have done harm, caused harm to God's people. And of course, as we've seen over and over and over again in our study of the book of Judges, the contemporary relevance is, is, is immediate to us, isn't it? We were surrounded by those who seem, who not just seem, they are, are illegitimate in their use of authority. They're power-hungry, self-serving in the use of authority, whether that's in the civil sphere or in the home or even in the church of Jesus Christ. We've, we could find evidence of these kinds of patterns. Judges chapter 9 is ultimately about God's covenant faithfulness even when he appears to be absent. You know, as we've been working through uh, the, an introduction to the book of Esther in Sunday school. We, we've seen that here's this book where God's name isn't even named. In the entire book of Esther, there's nothing recorded of God's dramatic dealing. There's nothing recorded of his immediate intervention. And yet, God is the invisible actor, the unmistakable actor, the driver of everything, the governor of everything throughout the book of Esther. We find something very similar in the book, or in, in Judges chapter 9. God's covenant name, Yahweh, isn't used at all here. God's more general name, Elohim, is mentioned uh, in, in two different sections in the book, but it's done so in such a way that we, we're, we're, we're reminded that there's no such thing as secular history. There's no such thing as secular history. God is ruling and governing all things from the least to the greatest. And I love this statement. It's a very short little statement in our confession of faith. Chapter, chapter 5, we have an entire chapter in our confession devoted to explaining the doctrine of God's providence. And it just simply means that God is the, is the ruler and the judge of everything. He governs everything from the least to the greatest. Nothing is outside of his oversight and his control. And the very last paragraph, the very last sentence in that chapter, and I love this, as the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures... So after a more special manner, it taketh care of his church and disposeth of all things to the good thereof. Now, on one hand, this is mind-boggling if we stop and think about it. There's nothing, not one random molecule in all of the universe. God rules and governs all things. And somehow, compared to his infinite rule and control of all things, even in a more special manner, he rules and governs all things for the benefit and the blessing of his people. That's remarkable. And Judges, 9, or Judges chapter 9 reminds us of that. Even when it appears that godlessness reigns, even when it appears that lawlessness is the rule, 
even when it appears that those who are self-serving and illegitimate have found their way into places of authority and influence and power, God's people have a greater hope. God's people have an abiding hope, an infinitely valid hope that's rooted in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who rules and governs all things. Now, this is one of the longer chapters we've tackled so far in the book of Judges. I'm not going to read every sentence in the chapter today. We'll work through most of it throughout the course of the sermon, but I'm going to begin by backing up a little bit. In case chapter 9 wasn't long enough, I'm going to add a couple paragraphs from chapter 8. But I want us to get a running start here. So I'm going to read to begin with Judges chapter 8, verses 29, and then I'm going to read down to verse, through verse 6 of chapter 9, and then we'll cover the rest of the, the chapter as we go. But even though it's a longer chapter, I'm going to give you two points, two headings today. The first one is the peril of power-hungry leadership. I think this is a case study in, in how dangerous it is to have men or women rule over us who are power-hungry. And secondly, and hopefully, we see God's certain and yet unexpected judgment. We see God's certain and yet unexpected judgment. So hear now the word of God. Again, I'm going to back up to verse 29 of chapter 8 and read through the first six verses of chapter 9 to begin. Hear now the word of God. Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died... The people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them, and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbaal rule over you, or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of baal Barith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Notice in, this, in the first place the peril of power-hungry leadership. Now, Abimelech's treachery is, is complex here. I mean, it, it, it's murderous, but it's, it's, it's even worse than that. Notice what he does. Now, Abimelech, is, as, as you recall, 
We see this at the end of chapter 8. This was Gideon's illegitimate son. This was the son of a concubine. He wasn't even raised with Gideon. Gideon lived in a different place in Ophrah, his, the city of his, of his parents. Uh, Abimelech is the son of a concubine who lived in Shechem. So Abimelech, whose name we saw last week, means my father is king, comes to his people in Shechem, and notice how deceptively, notice how manipulative he is in, in governing and order, overseeing circumstances in order to put himself in a place of power. And he comes, and he comes to, the, to, the, to his mother's relatives, and he says to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, again, he starts here, he starts with these family bonds and says, you know, this is really in your best interest, What's better for you, that 70 men rule over you, or that one man? I mean, I just, I'm spitballing here. Maybe me could rule over you. But do you, do you see the manipulative kind of speech? Where he says, it, it, it's better for you that this would happen. And then he says, why don't, why don't you sort of put a bug in the ear of the officials of Shechem? Gideon doesn't, I mean, uh, Abimelech doesn't go directly to these officials and make his appeal. He doesn't go to those who have the authority to make him king. He goes to his family and, and basically initiates a whisper campaign. He initiates a propaganda campaign that this is, why don't you go and whisper in the ears of the officials, hey, Abimelech would be better for us. If we could serve him, because, I mean, he's our flesh and blood. And, and that's what happened. The, the murmurings went out, and it's actually quite successful. And the men of Shechem end up giving him 70 pieces of silver out of their idol temple, out of the house of Baal Barith, which is really... A, a, a tragic statement. Baal, of course, we know is, is one of the gods of the Canaanites, but this term Berith has to do with covenant. And, and they've essentially bastardized the covenant that they had with Yahweh by saying, we're going we're gonna to sort of repackage this as a covenant with Baal. And from here, they take 70 pieces of silver and Abimelech hires worthless and reckless fellows. I don't have to do a whole lot of explanation. You know right away that's not a good situation. And you know in any generation, any place in history, you could find worthless and reckless fellows who are willing to take money for their services. And you could promise them, maybe it's money that motivates them, maybe it's fame, maybe it's prestige, maybe it's a future reward of some kind. There are always worthless and reckless fellows willing to be persuaded by such a man as Abimelech. And he followed these men followed him. Then he goes, he, drives, he makes the 30-mile uh, trip over to Ophrah to his father's house, and he kills his 70 brothers, or actually 69 of the 70 brothers. But it's even worse than that. Because what we're told here is he does this all on one stone, which means this is not a sudden attack by which he rushes upon these 70 men and kills them. This is one by one by one, they're systematically murdered on the same stone. This takes a while. I mean, this is not easy, not a quick thing, to go through and butcher 
70 men, one by one by one. So we take notice of, of, of Abimelech's treachery. And I'll come back to this point in a moment, but, but his, this is motivated by him being power-hungry and willing to do almost anything to get it. But notice here that this doesn't, this doesn't escape God's notice. And we're going to see, as, as, the, as the chapter progresses, God's sort of secret hand here. It's not immediately obvious, but we're going to find here, I'm going to give you a spoiler if you turn to the end of the chapter, verse 56 and 57, this is the interpretive key to the whole chapter. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal. So God is at work here. Now, Jotham, who is the youngest brother the youngest son of Gideon, somehow, we're not told exactly how, but somehow he escapes the slaughter. His 69 brothers are murdered. Jotham escapes. And the narrator here just sort of gives us that little nugget that Jotham escapes. And we're left with, in any other story, any if you're reading a novel or even watching a movie, you see that kind of detail, you know, that's going to be significant. That's going to come back and be significant. And of course, it is. In verse 7, when it was told Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. So here's the scene. There's this sort of uh, domed outcropping, geographical feature outside of the city of Shechem. Jotham hears about the fact that his brothers were murdered, all of them. And he goes and he stands up here and takes advantage of the acoustics of standing up on this high place. And he, and he basically yells out to the men of Shechem. And notice he addresses them immediately, not Abimelech. Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. Just as a... As a an interpretive note here, Jotham is telling a fable. And perhaps many of you have read something like Aesop's Fables. Um, these, these are usually short stories or poems designed to communicate a moral truth. And they'll use plants or animals or some other creature to sort of illustrate this point. Well, that's what Jotham does. He tells a fable. And he says that the trees go out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out from the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Notice that in Jotham's fable, we have the most 
the three most significant plants in the ancient Near East, the ones that were the most blessing to, to the people of God in particular, the olive, the fig, and the grapevine. And each of those, they were appealed to for, they appealed, each one of them when they're asked in the fable, will you come and rule over us? Will you hold sway over us? In each case, the answer was no, because I'm far too fruitful for that. And in each case, in and of themselves, they were already bearing good fruit, and they had no desire to rule illegitimately over the others. They had no desire to lord over, lord themselves over the other trees. Now, I don't think we're meant to understand this fable as sort of anti-monarchical. Uh, there are some who've said, well, this is, this is sort of an anti-monarch uh, treatise given here in the book of Judges. I don't think that's the case, but it is surely a lesson that certain kinds of kings and rulers can offer nothing but thorns and fiery judgment. That's the message. Only the bramble, who, who had no inherent fruitfulness, who had nothing to offer, said, sure. I mean, if you want me to, to rule, I mean, I guess I'd be willing to do that. Men who have nothing with which to bless and serve others make the worst rulers. That's always the case, isn't it? And, and sadly, the ones that we might want to rule, the ones who are inherently fruitful, uh, are often too busy in other matters to give themselves, especially in the world of civics, to give themselves to civil service. But we learn here from Abimelech that there are always those who will seek personal gain by means of their power-hungry leadership. But what does this look like? How do you identify? I said this was a case study, in some ways, of a power-hungry leader. What, do we, what does this look like? How do you identify a power-hungry leader? I think Abimelech gives us some things with which we can ponder, things that we can look for. It's not an exhaustive list. It's not an infallible list. But in Abimelech, we, we observe some very common features, some very common traits of men and, and women who are power-hungry and those, for whom we, those with whom we would not want to see them in leadership. The first one is manipulation. This was, the, this was what started, down, uh, started Abimelech down the path of sort of consolidating power and authority was manipulation. He didn't come at and ask exactly what he wanted. He didn't go to those who could actually give it and speak directly to them and said, I'm here, my name is Abimelech, you all know my mother, I'm here to apply for the position of king. He didn't do that. He sought to manipulate the circumstances. He sought by, by subtlety and deceit to put himself in a place of favor, and he used whatever he had, family bonds, in order to do this. And a sense of jealousy, perhaps, where he could appeal to the pride of the men of Shechem, that you don't really want Jerubal's sons ruling over you. Surely it'd be better for you if one of your own ruled over you. Power-hungry leaders often are manipulators. They're dishonest men. But there's a second thing we notice about the nature, the characteristic, the traits of power-hungry leaders is they have a willingness to use others. 
They, they see others as, as tools for their own personal use rather than looking at others as those whom God may be calling them to serve and to help. And we see this, of course, in Abimelech. Abimelech looks at even his family members. He doesn't look at them as brothers and sisters. He looks at them as, who, how can I use them for my own gains? How can I use them to accomplish my goals? He sees the people around him as just simply tools. People that can be used selfishly. Thirdly, we see power-hungry leaders tend to surround themselves with yes-men. They surround themselves with yes-men. We see this, of course, with Bimelech. He hires worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. He was perfectly content. Of course, these guys could be bought, but you can. there are ways to buy men other than money, right? He happened to give them 70 pieces of silver, which ironically, tragically, there's one piece of silver for every brother. It's how little he valued the lives of his own flesh, which means the ones of his mother's family, he didn't really value. He was using them to get what he wanted. Dale Davis quips. He says, blood is thicker than brains, apparently. These men were willing to be bought and to commit murder for the sake of Abimelech. But no one stands up to him. No one says, um, Abimelech, can I, can I bring an issue up? I think this is an illegitimate way to go about consolidating power. None of them did that. These were all perfectly, they were perfectly content with whatever Abimelech had promised him to go along with his scheme. Fourthly, Power-hungry leaders are often willing to sin in order to eliminate rivals. They're willing to sin in order to eliminate a rival. And, and someone who's perceived to be a threat to their authority is eliminated. And maybe in this case, the elimination was through brutal murder. But we all know there are many ways that we can eliminate people. We could delegitimize them. In, in the context of our civil governments, uh, people that end up being uh, blackballed and politically put out to pasture because they wouldn't go along with someone's schemes and plans. We see this, sadly, even in, in church environments where people are ostracized, ignored, because they wouldn't go along with someone who wanted to manipulate and use people for their own gain. There's a fifth feature here, and again, this is, list is not exhaustive. It's not an infallible list. But there's a, there's a fifth characteristic we see here in the life of Abimelech that, that shows up often in power-hungry leaders, and it's, it's a heavy-handed response to perceived disloyalty. A heavy-handed response to what he perceives as disloyalty. We're going to see this later on in the narrative, but Abimelech ends up killing a thousand women and children from his own city because he wrongfully thought that even the individual citizens were participating in an attempted coup against him. And so even just this perceived threat to his to loyalty, a perceived disloyalty resulted in his coming down hard on them. One commentator who's actually quoting from the memoir of, of a Nazi party official. And he's reflecting back upon 
the Nazi Party celebration in September of 1934. Listen to what he says about Hitler. He says, The words Hitler uttered, the thoughts he expressed, often seemed to me ridiculous. But that week in Nuremberg, I began to comprehend that it did not matter so much what he said, but how he said it. Hitler's communication with his audiences was uncanny. He established a rapport almost immediately and deepened and intensified it as he went on speaking, holding them completely in his spell. In such a state, it seemed to me, they easily believed anything he said, even the most foolish nonsense. Over the years, as I listened to scores of Hitler's major speeches, I would pause in my own mind to exclaim, what utter rubbish, what brazen lies. Then I would look around at the audience, his German listeners were lapping up every word as the utter truth. See, there are characteristics in every time and every place of those who are power-hungry leaders. But the striking feature of Judges 9 is that the power-hungry despot is not an outsider. He's an Israelite. Abimelech is the son of Israel's most recent hero and judge, Gideon himself. Now, in the New Testament, God has given to his people very, a similar instruction and, and a similar warning about leaders. And specifically as it applies to the church. And in, in Christ's apostles in the New Testament, stated positively, stated negatively, and even by their own example, exemplify the kind of servant leadership that is the antithesis. It's the opposite of the kind of power-hungry leadership that we observe in Abimelech. Now let's consider, I'm going to turn to several passages in the New Testament. Turn over to 1 Timothy with me. We're going to get two different passages there. But I want you to see there, there is, the, the apostles give to us an affirmative case of what biblical leadership ought to look like in the church of Jesus Christ. Because we see in, in, in dramatic fashion what kind of harm can come with someone like Abimelech. And we might be tempted to think, well, I mean, that's an extreme case. I mean, Abimelech was a murderer. But saints throughout church history, blood has been shed at the hands of despots and tyrants, even within the church of Jesus Christ. And perhaps it hasn't, even when it hasn't resulted in murder, the souls of God's people have been harmed. Damage has been done to God's holy and beloved people. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see again these, this affirmative case. We see, we'll see it. there's a parallel passage we won't turn to in Titus 1. But Paul gives the qualifications of those who would serve as leaders in the church of Jesus Christ. Elders, first of all. Elders, pastors, overseers. Those are all synonymous words. But also for deacons. He says in chapter 3, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now think about the contrast. 
in these words, in this description of godly leadership within the church, to something like Abimelech. And the kinds of, of, of self-centered leadership that we see in Abimelech. And again, you might think Abimelech is, a, is, is an extreme case, but that's some, often the way the Bible speaks to us, is gives us an extreme case so we can draw out conclusions from that. Then we can learn how to spot and how to avoid those who would be unprofitable, unsuitable leaders. So that's the affirmative case. He also, again, Titus chapter 1 gives us a parallel, but, but two chapters later in 1 Timothy in chapter 5, Paul gives us the negative. He gives us a warning. He says in verse 17 of chapter 5, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. There, Paul sets forth the biblical doctrine of of pastors receiving a financial compensation for their labors. Then he says, do not, verse 19, admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So Paul's giving to the church here a firm foundation that your, your, your leaders are, are not above being disciplined and chastened by the church of Jesus Christ. They are members of the church, as is every other member, and are subject to the same sanctions, the same disciplines as every other member of the church. Now do it justly, demand two or more witnesses, but they are not above the law, so to speak. He says in verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty. Here's the warning. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. He tells the church, as you're considering leaders within, within your body, particularly pastors, don't be hasty in this. Don't rush to this. And Paul's in a moment is going to give a very practical reason for that. But then he just parenthetically says, in fact, in, our, in the ESV translation, there's, there are actual parentheses, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous. They're obvious. Going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So there's a very practical admonition. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't be hasty in in ordaining someone to the office of pastor because in some cases, a man's sins are obvious to everyone quickly. But in other cases, they don't show up for a while. They're not very obvious. But the other side of that is true as well. He says, verse 25, so also the good works are conspicuous. Sometimes a man's gifts are not as obvious. But in due time, even those that are not, cannot remain hidden. Even those gifts that may not be obvious to the church at first will not remain hidden. So Paul is, is, is putting before the church both affirmative instruction, this is what you ought to look for in your leaders, but on the other side of this, don't be hasty. Don't, don't think that these things can be evaluated instantaneously. Then we also see by apostolic example these same kinds of things. You don't have to turn here, but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
Paul, and he's not bragging here, he, he just he sets forth the manner of his ministry among the church at Thessalonica. And he says, you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And then a few verses later, he says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Don't you see the contrast once again? Here, Paul, by his own example, says, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother with her children. I mean, you've all seen that, but there, there's no natural affection on the planet that's greater than a mother caring for her infant son or daughter. There's a tenderness, there's a gentleness there. He says, like a father dealing with his own children, we exhorted you, we were patient with you, we were kind to you. In fact, we had gotten to the point where, where we, you had become so very dear to us, we couldn't help but give ourselves to you. So Paul, by positive instruction, by warning to his church, and by his own example, Paul and the other apostles taught and warned God's people to seek out men who, who would lead for God's glory and who would lead for the good of God's people, not for their own self-interests. But sadly, Abimelech was not the last power-hungry ruler of God's people. Church history has been marked by men who sought to exalt themselves, men who sought to use the church of Jesus Christ as their own little kingdom. And how do we now, as God's new covenant people, think about this? When we see despotic, power-hungry leaders in the, in, the, in the culture at large, or even more tragically, in the church of Jesus Christ? I mean, where, where does our comfort, our hope come from? Where, where does our assurance come from? under such circumstances, when we, when we observe that. And it comes in the last half of the chapter. It comes in the last half of, of Judges chapter 9, if you want to turn back there now. We see that our comfort rests in God's certain yet unexpected judgment. We find our comfort in the fact that our God of, of, of perfect justice has promised to make all things new, to make all things right. The overarching theme of Judges 9 is, is not ultimately Abimelech's treachery. I mean, that's the backdrop. That's the context for it. But, but the overwhelming theme in Judges 9 is God's judgment upon those who harm his people. It, it is God's deliberate action to punish those who would, who would ruin his name and harm his people. Now, what we see here 
if we'll go back to Judges chapter 9 in verse 7, we see Jotham as he stands up and he gives this, this curse on Abimelech and upon the men of Shechem. That's what drives the whole chapter. Uh, in fact, if we went back to chapter 5 and 6, we, we, we would see parallels with the prophet speaking there to, uh, to, to Deborah. We see parallels here with Jotham. Jotham's not called a prophet, but he's very prophetic in the way that he speaks. And Jotham's curse on Abimelech is what drives the rest of the chapter. And what's curious in Judges 9 is that God's judgment is both certain and it's unexpected. God's judgment is is certain, but it's also unexpected. Here's what I mean. It's certain in the sense that God has promised to protect his people, and God's promises never, ever, ever fail. But it was unexpected in, in at least two ways. One, the manner in which the judgment came. I mean, who would have thought? Raise your hand if you would have anticipated that the mighty Abimelech would be killed by a woman throwing a rock over the wall. It was unexpected. No one expected that. Certainly not Abimelech. But also the fact that the judgment came heavily even upon God's own people. God's own people. It's certain, and it's unexpected. Judgment comes first upon the men of Shechem. Look at verse 26. Well, I'm going to just back up to summarize what's happened as Jotham gives his, his fable, and then he, he exhorts the men of Shechem, if, if you have acted faithfully, if you acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubel and with his house, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem. This is a curse. He's pronouncing a curse upon them. If you've not acted in good faith, then let fire come from Abimelech, and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo, and devour Abimelech. And then Jotham exits stage right. He runs away, he flees, he goes to Beer, he lives there, and because of Abimelech, his brother. But then what happens, we're told that Abimelech rules for three years, and that God himself, verse 23 God himself sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. Isn't this the way that it ultimately happens? As the old saying goes, there's no honor among thieves. Evil men ultimately will betray one another. And God himself stirs up this division that begins to form and foment between the men of Shechem and Abimelech. There's a suspicion that comes, and so much so that the men of Shechem seek to sabotage, in in again, a manipulative, indirect way, Abimelech's leadership. They set an ambush out on the hills so that anyone who comes by gets robbed. what What are they doing? They're instigating a crime wave. They're instigating an an upsurge in violent crime so that Abimelech, as king, would would suddenly become questioned in the skill of his leadership. What kind of king is this that we can't even go from place to place without getting robbed? Well, then, one night at a a pub, I guess, in verse 26, we see a man named Gael. Gael is, is the son of Ebed. He moves into Shechem with his relatives, 
and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And he begins, in the midst of this festival, I can imagine him with sort of slurred speech standing up and saying, someone ought to take on Abimelech. Again, just spitballing here, maybe that should be me. You know, what's interesting is everyone, with the exception of Jotham in this whole account, is self-serving. With the exception of Jotham, everyone in all of chapter 9 is out to exploit someone else to gain something for themselves. So Gael, the son of, of Ebed, says, Who is Abimelech, and who are the we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubael, and is not Zebel his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. So he's, this is pub talk. This He's talking big. As the wine, the mead, whatever it was, is flowing, he's talking big here. Well, Zebel hears about this, communicates secretly to Abimelech that you've got someone who's opposing you and he's getting pretty loud. So Abimelech assembles four companies of men overnight to ambush. And here's Gail the next morning. You know, he's just got his cup of coffee. He's out by the front gates. And he looks out on the hills and says, there can be men coming. And Zebel, <laughs> it's really kind of funny. Zebel says, you mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. And then Gail spoke again. Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebel says, where is your mouth now? You who said, who is Abimelech? That we should serve him. So there's an ambush laid. Zebel goes out to fight. He's routed. He and his forces are routed by Abimelech. And you think that's the end of it. But here's what we find in the character of Abimelech the following day. We see this in verse 42. On the following day, the people go out to, this is the people of Shechem. The ordinary citizens of Shechem go out to their fields, and Abimelech is still furious. He wasn't satisfied to cut off the head of the snake, he now wants vengeance. I said earlier that it's often a mark of power-hungry leaders that they have a a disproportionate response to a perceived disloyalty. And that's what we find here with Abimelech. The problem is over, and yet that wasn't good enough. And Abimelech, when the company was with him, they rushed forward, they stood at the entrance, this is in verse 44, and stood at the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field, and they killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he razed the city and sowed it with salt. Totally destroyed the city and and eliminated even the hope of rebuilding it by sowing it with salt. Then all the leaders of the tower, all the leaders, or when all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elberith, And Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. So he he and all of his men, they have bundles of brush and wood. They line it around the tower and they set it on fire. 
Verse 49, so every one of the people cut down his bundle and followed Abimelech, put it against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire over them. And so all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. And what was Jotham's promise? That fire would go from Abimelech and consume the men of Shechem. Well, that's exactly what happens here. Just as Jotham had predicted, fire comes from Abimelech, and consumed Shechem. This is sobering, especially especially when we, we consider the promise of the New Testament that judgment will begin at the household of God. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that, in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us... What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? See, it is not only Abimelech who is judged of God here, but all those who participated with him, all those who encouraged him, all those who enabled him, all those who believed and were were willing to allow themselves to be manipulated in such a way to put a man like Abimelech as a ruler over them. You know, the old saying goes, we often get the leaders we deserve. Abimelech proves this, doesn't it? The men of Shechem prove this. God will not be mocked. All those who oppose him will face his wrath, and that wrath will come most severely. That wrath will come most severely upon those who appeared to be insiders, those who profess to follow the Lord and yet used and abused his people. I think it's necessary at at, at this juncture to give uh, an exhortation, a word of of specific warning to those here among us this morning who are not yet in Christ. I mean, if this is the kind of judgment, this is the kind of fire, this is the kind of condemnation that God will pour out on his own people who oppose his work, how much more danger are those in who, who reject Christ altogether? who exalt themselves and in their pride think, I'm just fine. I don't have to submit to this God who is in heaven whom I can't see. There is a judgment surely coming. And that's the message of Judges chapter 9, is that this, this, this judgment of God is unexpected when it arrives, but it is certain that it's going to arrive. The people of, of Shechem thinking they had dodged a bullet the night before with Gael's treachery and his attempted coup. They go out into the fields. They go out of their ordinary labors the next day thinking, we're fine. And judgment came that very day. And they perished in the fire of, not Abimelech, but the fire of God's judgment upon them. And again, we know that because Verse 56 and 7. Verse 57, God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubel. This was God's judgment upon them. And then yet again, just as Jotham had predicted, Abimelech also faces the judgment of God. We see this at the very end. Verse 50, Abimelech went to Thebes. So Abimelech is now just sort of... um, in a, in, a, in, a, in a state of violent lust. 
He's just destroyed the entire city of Shechem. He's raised it, meaning R-A-Z-E. He's raised it, wiped it off the face of the earth in a sense, salted it so it can't be rebuilt. And now he's not willing to stop there. He goes to the next city. And there's no evidence that these people had anything to do with it. He goes to Thebaz and he encamped against Thebaz and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower and Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. He's planning to do exactly the same thing he did in Shechem and expecting exactly the same result. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. We don't, we're not even told the name. Reminds me of when Ahab was ultimately killed by the war. We're told a certain archer just, just happened to draw his bow, and the arrow just happened to fly, and just happened to land at the point of Ahab's chariot, and just happened to find the space between his armor. Just a certain man. And here it's a certain woman who just throws this millstone over and crushes his head. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. There was nothing more humiliating for a leader of Israel to imagine than being killed by a woman. Now he tried to to sort of cover up by getting his armor bearer to run him through with the sword, but the damage was already done. It's recorded for us. We all know how he really died. And, and here, we've, we've seen this over and over again and so far in the book of Judges, where God humiliates those who would oppose him. And we think, well, that's primarily someone like the Midianites, the Canaanites, later on the Philistines. But here, it's his own people. An Israelite who sought to oppose God was utterly humiliated, not just judged, not just consumed by God's judgment, but humiliated. Abimelech faces the judgment of God in the same way. The judgment, in, in a sense, doesn't it feel sort of ordinary and, and common? It's almost anticlimactic. After all that's gone on, I mean, going back to the, the 70 sons slaughtered one by one by one by one by one on the, on the stone, an entire city destroyed, a thousand people. Can you hear the screams of a thousand people being burned alive in a tower? And it just seems anticlimactic. Are you ready to do the same thing again? And he's gone. And God's judgment, we're told, and this is repeated for us in the New Testament, is very similar. We think it's not going to come. We think it's slow. We, we think it, it perhaps has escaped us. God's judgment surely comes. It is both certain and it's unexpected. And this is precisely what the Lord Jesus says in the, in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. We, we can get kind of off in the weeds with a lot of the details in the Olivet Discourse and, and fail to take into account two things that Jesus says very plainly. The judgment is certain and it's unexpected as to its timing. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For the men of Shechem, 
It was just like the days of Noah. They went out into their fields. It was an ordinary day. And that was their last day. Saints, we don't know. We don't know when the Lord will return. We don't know when the day of judgment will come. But we know that it will come. We know it is certain. We know it is, it is unexpected. I have in my notes, and we won't turn to it because it's, it's a, I plan to read the entire third chapter of, of 2 Peter. But Peter deals with this very issue. He points to scoffers. There are scoffers who say, where is the promise of his coming? Because from the beginning, everything just keeps going on and on and on, just like it always has. And, and the Lord hasn't returned, so God's judgment maybe isn't a real thing after all. And, and, and we can sort of, in, in our conceit, we sometimes are too generous in our own self-assessment, and we will think, well, that's, I'm sure glad I'm not a scoffer like that. And yet, we see in 2 Peter 3 that it's not only rank unbelievers who doubt the judgment of God. Can't you find yourself sort of doubting it at times? Can't you find yourself as a, as a Christian thinking, is God ever going to make things right? I mean, I see evil men prosper. I see the wicked rising up and being placed in positions of power and authority, and, and, and it seems like they're winning. It seems like they're becoming more and bold and, and more successful with every passing day. And we can subtly shift our thinking and, and begin to believe or doubt God's going to do what he says he's going to do. But I would commend that to your, to your meditation, the entire third chapter of 2 Peter, and, and meditate upon what Peter says. The judgment is certain, and it's unexpected. It is certain in the fact that it's going to happen. It's unexpected as to its timing. But God has intended that unexpectedness, to make up a word, to demonstrate his patience. To, to give men opportunities to hear the gospel and repent. But his patience isn't forever. And we think about the attributes of God. There, there are a number of attributes about God that are, that are described for us as infinite. Patience isn't one of them. His patience is not without limit. Is it not true that you and I ought to see a glimpse of our own remaining unbelief as we think about Peter's warning, do we not also sometimes doubt that God will indeed judge and destroy those who harm his people? The lesson of Judges chapter 9 is that history is going to be marked by illegitimate and power-hungry rulers. That's a fact of history. But every single one of them stands under the judgment of God that will certainly come. It may come in unexpected ways. It may come in an unexpected time. But unless they repent, unless they turn to God in Christ, that judgment will certainly come, and it will especially come upon those who have harmed the people of God. Judges warns us about the peril of of power-hungry leadership. And at the same time, it points to us, points for us to the certain judgment of God upon those who would oppose him, who would harm his people. I'm going to close by reading, rereading uh, a brief passage that Brother Stephen read in our Old Testament reading in Isaiah chapter 9. Don't turn here, just, just listen. Let these words soothe your soul. 
See, we have this thorny king of Abimelech, but we have been offered saints a greater king, one who wears the thorns on his own head, the one who bore the shame, who bore the sorrow. Listen to Isaiah chapter 9. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Does that sound familiar? For us, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Abimelech, in all of his treachery, also points us ahead to Christ who is in every way the antithesis. This account urges us to look to Christ. Abimelech, the very name that my father is king. The saints, we're encouraged to look to another whose father is the ancient of days. Look to the one who, who rules justly, who doesn't rule selfishly, who wasn't looking to exalt himself. In fact, it was in his utter humiliation, including even death on a cross, was the very means of his being exalted and seated at the right hand of God. Will you look to him? Will you trust in him? Will you consider that the judgment that he has promised is certainly going to come? And just as chapter 9, the, the whole chapter moves according to Jotham's prophecy, the judgment will surely come. And in many ways, it's a microcosm for all of redemptive history. We have a pronouncement of, of cursing upon the snake in Genesis chapter 3. And all of history after that is moving towards that certain and inevitable judgment that comes at an unexpected time. And God has raised up the king, the perfect king, the righteous king, who will rule over us for eternity. So let's pray together. Our God and our Father, thank you for the kindness that you've shown to us by making yourself known to us in your word by your spirit. Lord, will you grant to us the grace to see ourselves clearly, to see ourselves as we ought to see ourselves in light of your word. Lord, we confess that we, we can so easily deceive ourselves and even deceive others, and yet you know us perfectly. You know the treachery of our hearts. You know the selfishness, the pride. You know our own tendencies to use people, to manipulate circumstances, to surround ourselves with people who will be unwise counselors, who will commiserate with us rather than give us counsel from your word. We pray that you will, will make these things plain to us that your spirit will point us to the surpassing merit and sufficiency of Christ's atoning work so that we can find our hope, our comfort in him, the cleansing power of his blood, the 
the refining work of his spirit working through us according to your word, purifying even our consciences from dead works. Father, help us to rejoice in the great deliverance that those in Christ have received and to tremble at the the abiding wrath of a holy, holy, holy God that yet rests upon those who remain outside of Christ. Father, we know that you will be glorified either in our rescue or in the judgment of sinners. We pray for your grace to abound in this place that all who hear these words will, will flee to Christ for rescue and pardon and shelter and preservation. We ask this in his name. Amen.